Mick Cronin. Mark Wilson. How you doing? Not too bad yourself? Yes, very well, as always. Now, on today's show, uh, when we're talking about people with experience in the justice system, I think we haven't had uh, someone with the amount of experience that uh, this man has. Yes, across from us. Yes, and it's an episode that we um, we have spoke about for a while, and um, to be able to talk to uh, to someone who has that experience and is in the position that they're in, um, as well. So, yeah, we um, are delighted to have uh, Carl Kasky, the general manager of Ravenhall Correctional Centre, as our guest on Time to Rebuild. Welcome, Carl. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Pleasure, a pleasure is ours. So maybe we'll just kick off and just um, if you want to give everyone a bit of a, a bit of a background on, on who you are and, and uh, yeah, maybe just how you maybe got into the business a little bit, yeah. Okay, yeah, certainly um, it's, been, it's been a while since I told the story, but basically as a young man straight out of university in Canberra, um, went home to Cootamundra um, where I grew up, so I'm a country boy at heart. Um, and having spent about well, probably about six weeks uh, unemployed, um, my father said, go and get a job. Um, and the Juni prison was opening at the time in um, uh, southwest New South Wales, so about half an hour from Cootamundra. Um, so I went along there as a young man, but just turned 21 and um, uh, was successful enough uh, to, to get into the career um, and start as a correctional officer. So that was, that'll be 30 years um, come February uh, next year. So a long, long time ago. So as a young man, as a correctional officer, yeah, I, I, I tried my hand at most things in the industry. I was probably fortunate to stay around in the industry as a young man. A um, little bit wild, I guess, as all young men are, as you would know in particular. Um, but I managed to carve out a Pretty successful career, very interesting career when I look back on it. Um, uh, I spent 18 years at the prison at Juni, um, so New South Wales, and um, during that time, obviously successful in terms of going up the rank, uh, um, but also tried my hand at just about everything, so from training um, uh, to you know the business side of things. Um, I was for four years fortunate enough to travel around Australia uh, when. Our organisation had detention services, so I was, I was working at Woomera and, and Port Helen and places like that for periods of time. Um, uh, so that went over four years. And then 2006, they sent me to South Africa for a couple of months. Uh, there's a 3,000-bed maximum security prison in northern South Africa. And I uh, had some issues at the time, and they decided to send me over there to help their management sort those issues out. So I learned a lot about culture. Um, uh, then, so that was a quite a um, profound experience. For what, me. what year was that? That was 2006, February 2006. February 2006, South Africa. And how long did you stay there for? About two months. Two months. Yeah, two months. So they they had some significant issues there. They had a massive riot actually, and they they sent me over there to help uh, advise the management at the time on how to deal with a situation. So it was very surreal and very different and certainly took me out of my comfort zone and and uh, tested my you know knowledge and skill you know to the to the max at the time so i can imagine what was there uh, it's fascinating what was what was the major big thing that you would see the difference when you walked in like the real cultural shock or like just the, how the prison was the the you know the, the state of the prison um what was the biggest thing that you look back at now and you, and you were like, wow? When you, when you think of a South African prison, 3,000 beds, you, you would think it'll be a little bit chaotic. You'd think it'll be very hard. The, the opposite is, is true. So the, the prison was divided into three um, big complexes and there was one complex was called Green Prison, the middle one was called Blue Prison, and then there was Yellow Prison. So, so, and all the all the prisoners they wore yellow, blue, green socks, cap, shirt, the whole thing. When I was there, because of the riot, they had prisoners with blue caps on and yellow socks with green shorts, and it was just a just a bit of a mess. But in terms of compliance, it was a very compliant prison, a very different prison, um, and uh, it was. Um, well, they outsourced their programs to uh, to an organisation called Kansani, 
And out of two, 3,000 prisoners, about I think they had about 2,600 participating in education and programs. So their classrooms were chock-a-block full. And where they didn't have a teacher, they had a prisoner teaching the other prison, prisoners. And given that the, I think the, the, the prisoners serving the least was about 24 years, and then there was one guy there who was serving three life sentences plus a thousand years or something like that. So I thought to myself, why would you have so many prisoners in a classroom? What, what motivated a person to go and learn when they were never going to get out? Um, and I found the answer um, a couple of months after I came back to Australia. They had, I think they had, a, uh, from memory, uh, they had a, uh, a capacity of about 120,000, but they had about 140,000 inside. So they were, over, they were overcrowded significantly. So about two months after I came back, the governor turned around and pardoned 10,000. So for me, the light went on. I went, ah, that's why these people are motivated. There is some hope for them. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a very, very interesting experience, one I'll never forget. It's one of those things that happen in life and you take it for granted and then you reflect back on it and you went, geez, I wish I was paying more attention yeah. you know, yeah, at the yeah, time. And, yeah, but it was, it, was, it was a great experience. So then you were back to, uh, back to Australia then and you know, um, where did, what, where did uh, your career lead then? Uh, so I stayed in New South Wales until about 2011 and then uh, on the back of promotion um, I went down to, uh, as the operations manager at Fulham um, Correctional Centre in Gippsland. So, so I was there at Fulham for about eight years, I think thereabouts, um, and then was fortunate enough to be offered um, the, the position of general manager of Ravenhall, which, which for me is a privilege. I mean, when you, when you think, uh, when I think about my career and when I think about um, all the things that I've done, I think as being the general manager of one of the most progressive, um, biggest operations in terms of prisons in Australia, um, to be the, the, you know, the peak of my, of my career. It, it is an absolute privilege to be at Ravenhall. I mean, we've spoken before, uh, Mick, about all the wonderful things that we, and we'll talk more about it this afternoon, but um, I generally feel um, uh, privileged to work there with some of the people and some of the things that we're doing there and being able to have the opportunity via the podcast to actually tell our story a little bit, I, th- I, th- I think it's uh, timely enough. No, and, and credit is because, you know, we came to you with this idea that we wanted to do the podcast and we wanted to go in behind the walls and, and to do interviews and you just couldn't be more supportive. The great thing is that we've been able to share stories and just kind of really give people a real great insight into what the men are going through in the prison, but some of the great work that's being done as well by GEO Group as well. I want to just, just for our listeners, um, can, you, can you just explain a little bit? He said Fulham as well. So private prisons, just can tell people the difference between a private prison, what you would see between a private prison and then your kind of standard prison run by corrections. Um, well, I guess, uh, firstly, I've worked 30 years in a private prison. So I've never actually worked a public prison. I've, I've trained public prison staff in New South Wales and, and uh, I've been into a lot of prisons and I've spoken to a lot of the, the prison staff that work in there as well. So I do get a sense in terms of what happens in there. Mm-hmm. And with the, with the private prisons and stuff, the incentives, I know people get a lot of their information from TV shows and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the incentives are actually quite different in Australia compared to other countries for private prisons. Am I right by saying that? In recidivism rates, keeping them low? Um, so from uh, Ravenhall is the first prison on Australian soil um, to uh, offer you know, um, uh, payments by results. So if we reduce recidivism um, by a certain measure um, every year, uh, then there is a payment for that. So there is a contractual mechanism to, from a business perspective, to motivate us, you know. But I've found, to be, to be genuine, I've found that we don't, re- we never, from a business perspective, we don't really consider that, we don't think about it. Um, there is people in the prison today that genuinely believe in what we're doing. In terms of the greater good, it gives them a real sense of satisfaction and a real sense of purpose. Ravenhall, there is a sense of, um, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the word, a, a sense of hope, I guess. 
um, and a desire and a, and, a, and a sense that we can actually do something meaningful. Uh, I speak to pre-service courses um, all the time and I say there's nothing more admirable and honourable that you can do in life than uh, assist your fellow human being. Um, and <clears throat> at Ravenhall and in all prisons actually, um, they're dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in the community. Um, people through, you know, um, through whatever happens during their life, they, they are, have failed, I guess, in some way, shape or form, the community, and they've been put into you know, time out. Um, and uh, then it's left over to the prisoners to actually do something. And in some ways, deal, dealing with broken lives, we're given the responsibility to try and knit that life back together in a way that is actually um, successful. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, I love my job. Um, and as the person who's the general manager in charge of that um, and trying to get all of the pieces working correctly to make it happen, um, uh, look, I couldn't do... I, I couldn't be... You know, I wouldn't be dead for quits, you know. I couldn't think of another job that would, would give that satisfaction. It, that's interesting because, like, from... You know, obviously I've known you for a while and I've been around the, the whole of the, you know, Ravenhall story from, you know, pre tendered like to the whole way through but when you say that you you know you really enjoy your job like from people from the outside in be going you know being a general manager of a prison has to be very very stressful and has to be you know a lot of pressure is that fair to say and and uh, and how do you deal with it how do you keep yourself enjoying your job uh, that's a good question because sometimes you wake up some days and you just go is it worth it? You know, because there, there is there's a lot of intense yeah. pressure. You, you you're firstly dealing with a very high expectation from the community, from Corrections Victoria, um, from your own you know, company leaders, lords and masters. Um, then you have the day to day pressures on top of that. Just the normal running of a prison can be quite intense. You know, it it makes the job very interesting, but it does make it very intense. So how do I deal with that? I'm actually been quite fortunate because. Um, you know, I, uh, I've got a, a, a great partner at home who's sort of always on to me about on my phone because the work doesn't stop when I leave at four o'clock in the afternoon. It, it keeps going and I keep an eye on things, but I'm able to to balance that. And, I'm, and when I'm at home, I'm cold. You know, when I'm at home, I'm a, you know, rugby league manly supporter. When I'm at home, you know, I'm, I'm a... I'm a man who likes you know, going out, walking the dogs, you know, trying to stay fit um, uh, and looking for ways to assist the community as well. So I really do focus on that and try not to focus on, on, the, on the work. And the other thing that keeps me going is uh, I've always said to people, try and keep an air of positivism around, around yourself. Try and be optimistic. Try and take the, the, the best out of every situation, no matter how bad it gets. So the best way I've found and the reason I think I've survived so long in the industry is that I do keep that air of, you know, try and keep that positive outlook on, on everything that's happening in the prison. But there's also negativity outside of a prison. So the public perceptions of prisons, why they're being built, um, why they exist, why do prisoners in there, and this is not me, why they are seen to be getting off lightly or, leading a, a, you know, getting privileges in there. Um, and so forth. There's that old, you know, lock them up and throw away the key. So you've got the negativity, negativity of what you're saying sometimes a prison can have inside, but then outside, you're also dealing with that in whether it's media, social media, just the public in general. How do you go with that? Um, or do you just remove yourself from that when you're outside and, and you've got the abilities to, just to stay focused inside on the work you do? Or does it affect you and, and in what ways, if it does? Yeah. Another good question. I, I think, firstly, back at the prison, I, I say to people, let's not judge. Let's let's make it a house where we don't judge people. And we say that because fundamentally, we shouldn't. The prisoners have already been judged. They've been judged, you know, by by their by their peers. They've been judged by a magistrate. They've they've they've. We don't need to judge any further those people. So by nature, I try to keep the politics out, if you like. Of the, of the prison as much as I can. It's, it's difficult, though, because prisoners do reflect in some shape or form the community and what's going on in the community. And and um, 
to keep that those politics or those matters out is, is near on possible. But where it becomes divisive, it's dangerous for prisons if they take a particular viewpoint on what is a contentious or divisive issue because it could spark conflict in the prison itself. So through that, the reason I say that, because when I hear of the different viewpoints and the opinions in the community, um, look, I, I listen to them, but I try not let it to, to influence me or, or to, for me to um, uh, spark an emotion in me where I have to come out and support one opinion or the other. So as the leader of a, you know, um, uh, of a, of a prison, I try to maintain a very neutral sort of stance. People that know me privately know that I get quite passionate about politics and, and um, I do have an opinion and I do, and I'm not scared to say that, but not for this podcast, but, <laughs> but, you know, but, but I, do, I do try to temper that because it's, yeah. not, it's, not for me, uh, it's not for me to make that house a house of judgment because by nature they've already been judged. So I do try to filter or censor, if you like, some of the messaging sometimes. I'm, I'm always careful. Yeah. I think it's really good as well. I mean, like I remember my first day in Ravenhall, the first training session uh, that we had as a partner uh, in there five years ago now. And um, and the message was clear that we didn't want to be just another prison. Uh, and that was really, that was exciting for me as well because I've been, you know, in the industry about 10 years now. So um, it was really good that, that that culture that was getting set at the beginning, we're going to do things differently from the people we hire to the programs that we put into the program into the into the prison was really really good what would you say that you look for when including programs staff and all that sort of stuff we put a lot of focus on our recruitment process uh, not anyone can work in a prison but that's not to say they're, they're a bad person or anything it's not to say you know there's something strange about them in actual fact you could some people argue that people that do like working in prison are strange but um, but it does take a certain attitude and mindset to work successfully in a prison. You've, you've got to have, have a care for your fellow human being. You've, you've got to have a genuine interest in people, really, because if you don't, you're, you're going to, to struggle. You've got to be a, a good communicator. You've got to display the common sense. You've got to, you've got to um, uh, I think, uh, be a person who wants to be part of a community as well. So, so Ravenhall, we, we name our accommodation units communities because we're trying to establish communities within the community. We're trying to normalise things as much as possible. And what we want are people that are contributing positively to that, to that community. So that ethos, that community um, ethos is, is all important. But not everyone is a community player, you know, and that's not to say they're bad people. That's just say they don't want to... Um, they don't want to go out and uh, contribute to the community as much as other people, those sorts of things. So um, there's a whole range of different things that we look at. And look, it's very difficult sometimes uh, to choose the right people. But by and large, I think we're, we're OK. I think we're at the point now, after five years now, we've been operating come November, we've been able to establish, I guess, the foundations of a good culture. Um, are we there yet? No. You know, are, um, are we perfect? No. Um, but in terms of a prison and those that have worked in prisons before, when you do compare Ravenhall to, to, to other prisons, it actually, it's, it's a quite nice environment. Um, and that's made up of people who genuinely care, who actually believe they're contributing, making a difference to people's lives. Even though it's hard to see sometimes, um, it's, it's uh, those people become the role models, if you like, and carry that culture through. So um, in terms of services and programs, um, you know, we're lucky at Ravenall because we've got, I've said it before, you know, before, we've got all the ingredients to, to make it work. And when, it's, when I say ingredients, I'm saying all those things that make up or all those interventions that we can do um, that can be stacked on top of each other, put in a, a certain sequence, um, no matter what's happening in a person's life, to help them, you know, um, address whatever it is that keeps them coming back to prison. And that is a very complex um, picture. You know, when you're dealing with human beings and all the different things that brought them to prison and keeps them in prison or keeps them coming back to prison, it is one of the most difficult puzzles to solve. Um, and But what I can say is at Ravenel, we've got the programs, we've got the services, we've got, you know, 
teachers, we've got social workers, we've got clinicians, we've got trade instructors, we've got um, forensic mental health staff, we've got nursing staff, we've got, I think, I think at 1200 um, we had about close to 900 FTE, or, you know, when you consider all the alliance partners and, and the custodial staff and the geo staff, it, it's quite a large operation, simply because there's so many people working at their own different uh, discipline um, to try and to, to put that puzzle together correctly so the person when they get out they've got the best chance you know in the world not to not to uh, come back to prison when you uh and when you say 1200 is that we just talking about numbers there 1200 into prison at that stage because it'd be good to know as well just for the listeners um how many prisoners in the in Ravenhall now and I know there was it's changed a little bit over time and you know sentence remand and yeah just just probably good to to know what that is right now yep so we we um opened up opened up at a thousand but we had a footprint of 1300 um and then a couple of years ago when there was a lot of pressure on the state for beds uh, I think they were the state upwards of 8200 plus and they were running out of beds they put in additional beds. It took us to 1,600. We've never actually used those beds. Um, uh, and then, obviously, during COVID, our state muster and the system pressure has, has gone on 180. Um, so we've gone down to our contractual baseline level of 1,000. As of today, there was about 860-odd prisoners at, at Ravenel, which still makes it one of the largest prisons in Victoria. But we've got the capacity to, to be one of the biggest in the country so. Do you think it will move? It, it seems to be, like in your opinion, do you think that you'll see it go back up in numbers as well? Because, you know, it does variate, doesn't it, a little bit as well. And the second part of that is, how does that affect you as a GM and trying to run a, a prison if, you know, numbers are, you know, coming up and down? Because obviously down there would put pressure on having more staff or less staff. Um, different pressure, <laughs> but, but, but pressure nonetheless. So, so in terms of predictions, I, I really couldn't tell mm. you. And I, I've seen some modelling around predictions that have, um, uh, you know, I think the modelling is best guess. I mean, during the COVID years, and that's what we'll call it now, isn't it? You know, we, no one knew what was happening the next day. And trying to forecast a system that was going to um, operate six months, 12 months, two years down the track is, is n- not impossible. So the, the, the biggest, um, uh, when, you, when you think of prisons, you've got to think of the justice system because it, we're talking about the policing as well and we're talking about the courts and then we're talking about the correctional system. So how the police are operating post-pandemic or during the pan- pandemic and how they're operating now, how the courts are doing it um, and now how the prisons are doing it, it all feeds into the, the bottom line number, which is a prison system that is sort of flatlining at the moment. Um, the reason why, I, I couldn't tell you, to be honest, I couldn't, couldn't put my finger on one thing. Um, uh, perhaps Correction Victoria could answer that for you. I'm, I'm not too sure, Mick, but, but at the moment there is a sense that it will go up at some point um, and uh, how far it goes up, how quickly it goes up, um, that's best guess for me. And um, we want to focus a little bit more again on, on you know, getting a bit more into the programs. And, and I think, you know, <clears throat> you spoke about it earlier, just about what GEO and what Ravenhall um, set out to do um, as, a, as a prison and how it's maybe achieving that and, and how it's going. But, and also then to focus on what's the, the other, you know, the, the next stages as well. But you've touched on it a couple of times. And, um, and if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of delve in a little bit um, COVID, yeah, obviously we've mentioned it a couple of times and it comes up a lot in conversation. Hopefully it, it fades out a little bit. But we know from operating programs in that time um, the pressures that we had just operating our programs and the pressures then that we, you know, so, well, I suppose it was pressures, but what you had to deal with um, running a prison in the height of that pandemic. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to get your take on what it was like in there and how you managed to you know keep operating the way you did because I think it would be interesting to the listeners to know that like as the community numbers were rising and so forth and across the world if you looked at prisons it was a real problem for COVID in the prison and spreading into prison and then what came from that 
here it wasn't so much. Um, and that's not, I'm not making light of it. It wasn't so much because I, I'd love to know why you felt that everything that you've put in place and how you've managed through that um, resulted in how you were able to come through that pandemic in all the different stages. Okay, well, prisons generally operate in two modes. Your, your normal prison day-to-day operations. And then when something goes wrong, you're in emergency management mode. You know, and you could have all sorts of emergencies happen in your prison from fire to, to incidences, you know, to power outages, to a whole heap of different range of things. And all the, all the prison staff are trained to deal with each one of those. Pandemic is included in that planning. So when we first went in from, you know, the, was it February, March 2020, um, we started, people started taking it seriously, realised that we're going into a pandemic situation we more or less morphed into an emergency management situation where we had emergency control centres open. Um, we we had, um, I guess, uh, reactive, you know, um, uh, responses put into place to try and keep it out, to try and detect it. It was, and every day was different because every day the policy was changing, the sands were shifting. And it wasn't just the prison environment, it was the community environment, as you know. So it was almost as if something would happen in the community and the prisons were following step, you know. Some, and there were some big calls during that, during that pandemic for the prison system. So when they suspended um, social contact visits, that was, that was a massive call. Um, but equally as massive, when they introduced technology or innovation in that space to counter it, which was video visits, that was, again, a significant piece to, to managing the... Uh, the system through the pandemic so through crisis was born some real innovation and so video visits would be something I think now to stay and what a great way to connect with families you know it still remains very popular today um, video visits um, so then then I think we went through a period and, and as with the pandemic, we're going up and down in terms of the different variants that were coming. We're, we're sort of going into lockdown, coming out of lockdown, different variant on the scene, going back into lockdown, coming out of lockdown. It was that sort of you know wave going up and down. The prison system was doing the same thing because as the community started easing, if you like, in terms of the restrictions, the prison system then started to ease the restrictions. To give you an idea of the restrictions in the prison, at the height of the pandemic, to walk into Ravenall Correctional Centre, well, actually, before you walked in, you go to the uh, entryway just outside the glass doors. There'll be pedestrian um, tape there, you know, the, the, the cattle yards, as they call it, whatever. There'll be X's on the ground, um, so that's where you would stand. Then you would go through the glass doors after lining up. Um, you would get your temperature tested, OK, to make sure that you weren't hot. Um, you would then go to, a, a, we had a tablet set up um, at uh, sometime during the pandemic where you'd go through and you'd answer 12, 13 different questions and if you answered negative to any one of those, you couldn't come in. You'd have your rapid antigen test um, to make sure you didn't have COVID. Um, then you'd have to uh, doff and then don your, your, your N95 mask and then you got to the counter where you do your normal sc- uh, security barrier control. That's just to get in to the to the prison. Inside the prison, it changed dramatically, and it was just like the community was was going on about social distancing. The same thing in the prison, except it's more intense. It's a smaller environment. So where you had one person per four square meters or one per two square meters, we put that into the prison, and that significantly affected our classroom sizes. So we couldn't have twenty prisoners in a classroom anymore. It it it, it affected our factories. We couldn't have 30 prisoners in one area so we had to look at that at some point we introduced bubbles which we tried to keep our different accommodation units separate from each other that again changed everything up you know and then there was an outbreak someone got COVID and then everyone went in the DEFCON 5 you know it was it was almost surreal but you know lockdowns um, surveillance testing you know testing on mass I think at one point last year um, we experienced a Delta outbreak at, at Ravenhall um, and we had to put into place some very quick, uh, effective measures, measures to keep it contained. And we were, we chased it down 
we, we were able to actually manage and get, get rid of Delta at that, at that time. But we've had you know, probably you know, a number of outbreaks since then, as most of the prison system did. So, so you had to deal with the outbreak. You, you had to manage the staff. The vaccination program for the prisoners was another thing as well. So um, there was a lot of pressure, a really intense period of time where prisoners had to get one, two, three vaccinations. Um, but the prisoner population was, was just like everyone in the, in the community, was anxious. So there's a lot of education and, and awareness that we had to provide the prisoner population at the time. Sorry, sorry, Mick, I tapped your table. No, no, you're right. <laughs> so, so, so it was, it was extraordinary. I will never live through that. I hope I never live through that again. I've got to put my, take my head off um, uh, to the staff that worked um, in the prison system during that time, and I'm I'm talking all the prison staff in Christian throughout. For our Victoria, they were amazing. Look, we we were suffering significant staff loss uh, last year through it. I mean, I, uh, uh, I think at some point we lost two thirds of our staff um, in thirty six hours or something like that, just one after the other. The staff that left behind, they just rolled their sleeves up. They go, you know what? The prison's not going to go anywhere. We still got to look after the prisoners. We're still going to run the prison safely and securely. Um, I'm going to stick around and I'm going to do my best. And they were amazing. We, we had non-custodial staff wanting to help out, so they went into the coalface, delivered the mail, or they'd done what they could to help the custodial staff during that period of time. And I know the other prisons done the same, uh, had similar experiences as well. Um, almost every day we're having meetings with all the general managers talking about what was going on, you know, talking about numbers, talking about responses, policy changes, health advice, and it was relentless. And at, at some point I think it got to the situation where we were just, I wouldn't say in a situation where we're feeling you know, hopeless, yeah, but it was, it was tough. It was tough and uh, not everyone made it in terms of, you know, they, they got exhausted or they... They um, fell by the wayside during it, you know, staff I'm talking about, um, because it was just, it was really intense. What you felt in the community, you could probably double that in terms of pressure in the prison system. Um, but they got through it. They got through it. My hat's off, uh, my hat off to Corrections Victoria for the way that they've responded to it, because that's what we were doing at Ravenel. We were following the lead of, of you know, the commissioner um, and the deputy commissioner, and they were receiving the health advice. They'd set up systems and they were able to, to advise us and uh, all we had to do was just uh, follow, follow suit um, and keep it going, you know. Mm. Oh, look, yeah, and you, you've explained it um, brilliantly and I think even from our side being, you know, um, delivering programs in there, be one of the Alliance partners, I remember when that happened, having to talk to, you know, the YMCA and, and they were like, oh, you sure you can't walk into prison? I was like, no, we're under, you know, we're under instruction from, you know, GEO, who obviously with corrections and, and so forth. So it's it's all their calls and we follow suit. But I remember even talking about air staff at that time, especially you were doing maybe the sport and rec. And I know Rebuild were in there doing a bit as well. But, you know, doing sport and rec in full PPE gear um, and so forth. I think I used to say, hey, he's feeling there. go, it's all good. We just can't see out of our glasses, you know. Uh, so I'm not sure we could do what kind of sport and rec we're doing. But even then, I just don't think, you know, because um, community got back to normal, as we can call normal, um, and restrictions started to, you know, lift as well. But even when you're working in the prison now, you still have to have, you know, PPE. You still have to do that. And I, and I was saying to someone in the organisation as well, it's like, it hasn't changed, like, in the prison. Like, it's still, you know, it's obviously a little bit less, but it's still aligned to all that protocol and has to be um, as well. So people try to forget because you just get on with life and everything now, not wearing masks and no one, you know, but it's still, to this day, still running and operating under, you know, strict protocol to make sure the prisoners are safe, staff are safe and and so forth as well because COVID hasn't gone it's still the sickness that's there, but it's just making sure that you're managing it as well. I think people forget that. Yeah, there's, there's a number of um, uh, workplaces that the government's deemed high risk, you know, aged care, hospital settings, prison environments, um, because as I said earlier, we deal with a very vulnerable uh, person, but, uh, and that vulnerability takes a number of faces, but one of them is their health. 
um, by and large, the, the prisoner population, are, at least when they come in, they're, they're quite unhealthy. You know, you just imagine some of the things they've been through to get into prison. Um, so there's a lot of prisoners there with chronic health issues um, and respiratory issues, um, uh, and we've got a large contingent of Aboriginal prisoners as well. These are all people that have been identified in the community as vulnerable. So, so and prisons, um, as you know, are very con very confined environments. So, so that's why we're very conscious of if an outbreak happens, it can spread very easily and on an intense level because of the amount of people that we have on site. So th so it remains a high-risk environment. So even today, we have to wear our N95s. We have to undergo the rapid antigen testing and the normal protocols. But by and large, inside the prison, um, it's slowly returning to normal. So we're, we're able to resume our services and our programs to almost normal uh, normality. Um, and there is a sense of we're out of this. There is a real sense of we're through it finally because we've had so many disappointments in the years you know that this time it feels a little bit different so there's a there's an optimism to the air um, and that's what we're currently focusing on at Ravenel is actually re-energizing the services the programs re-energizing the staff trying to get people back on track and say hey listen this is remember Ravenel this is what we used to do you know we we, we were, have had this vision and we're going this direction um, remember that? Yeah, let's let's try and do that again, because two and a half years of pandemic has <sighs> knocked us for six, knocked everyone for six. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, and people are generally tired and, and fatigued. So we're we're again thinking about as a leadership team, how do we get, how do we look after our staff in that space? And that's a it's an ongoing issue and a challenge for us. How do you look after the staff just coming out two and a half years of pandemic? Um, it's all well and good to beat the drum about let's refocus, let's re-energise it, but how do we how do we do that with a staffing group that's uh, weary from mm. from two and a half years of pandemic? We uh, remember we spoke about the the video calls. Remember that? Yeah, no, it was great. It was uh, after speaking to some of the guys uh, that are in Ravenhall at the moment. Like some of the positives that came out of it were some of the international uh, prisoners that don't get regular visits, obviously being from another country and everything like that, started seeing a lot more of their family, yeah. uh, which then obviously had flow-on effects to that. It wasn't just the, the international. That just took it a whole new level. That mm. wasn't something that we expected when we first got it. But mm. we started hearing feedback very quickly that people, we have got a, uh, a number of deportees or we've got a number of people that don't have many family members or friends back here in Australia. Bang, family contact straight away with people from... All, all across the, the planet, which was fantastic. But the biggest feedback we got was that, um, you know, uh, little Johnny could could actually see his house again and, and see the pet, um, you know, see the Ford or the Holden in the, in the driveway and see what's been happening to it. They can, they can reconnect on another level. It's, it's a bit... When someone comes and has that physical contact, it's a different type of contact. But seeing, I guess, where they they come from, seeing their own home environment, and their and everything that attaches to that, all those emotional attachments to be able to see that through a video screen again, that's a different type of contact, which really does has that really has resonated positively with the with the prisoner community. Yeah, and it's getting them to look look forward, I guess, to one day when they walk out the, the gate to uh, to go back to that, you know, to go back to that car, to go back to that house and that family. Absolutely, and and it's something that we talk in our program. All the time, we, you know, how do you prepare for that that day that you are released? You know, what does that day look like? You know, what's your perfect day? And that can be, you know, and you know, having lunch with dad, and then gonna go and see my sisters and all that sort of stuff. And and just some of the answers are, are really good, you know, because that's what we want to start doing. Want to start thinking, all right, what do I value now? I've come in. I've come into a place that has, you know, that uh, that I've had a lot of my liberties taken away and everything like that. Now it's put a lot of things in perspective. Prisons are a place of reflection. Mm. They really are. Mm. So no, none of the prisoners want to be there. No. Uh, they don't. And they start reflecting upon their lives. They start reflecting upon what matters to them, mm. um, what, what, in some instances, what their priorities are. When they get a little bit older and they start working out that, you know, I'm sick of coming back to prison. Um, what do I need to do to stop this, you know? Um, so that reflection, this is where... You know, Ravenel does it, you know, really well. 
um, they come into that reflection space and they offer something different and they offer and provide an opportunity uh, for people to live a slightly different life or if not a completely different life to what they're used to. And that, that reflection, that, you know, looking at their pet dog that, you know, they've known for 10 years and they miss desperately over a video screen, it just brings to their, to their mind what life is about, what their priorities in life are about. And, and hopefully um, you know, it gets them into a space where they're conducive to opening themselves up for different learnings and, and, uh, and, and uh, different experiences and, and hopefully a life-changing event. Mm. It's progressive, isn't it? And and I love that part of it because I, I remember one person we interviewed who was a, a parent, you know, young kids, and got to see their kids' room. And as I told that story, we're just looking at their face, and yeah, they, that was amazing to them. And 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 going on what you just said, um, Carl, and that's why it gives them something to look to and go, okay, you know what I mean? I need to be there. Like I, I, I need to be there closer. I can't be on just side of the screen. I need to be able to get my life back so I'm there for them, not just you know in a video call. So, um, yeah, I thought it was really progressive. Um, and moving up, so if we start to look at you know some of the stuff that you know Raven Hall, some of the stuff the GEO been doing. If we look at the prison, you know the whole charter, what what it was set out to do. You touched on it at the start a bit as well. So, you know, to you. Why does it work, and what's what's working in there, and why does it work, and and uh, can you share some of the stuff that you see that's you know a little bit different and, and a little bit more innovative? Yeah, I think I said to you before we've got all the ingredients at Ravenel, but what does that mean? Uh, so for me, all the ingredients that make us successful, more successful than others, is that from the outset when you come to Ravenhall, you know we've got the the professional services in place to talk to you, to, uh, to do the assessments, to work out what keeps you coming back, to work out you know, where, where the risk is, if you like. They call it risk um, in terms of those factors that keep you coming back to prison. But then we've got all of the pre-release. We've got all the services. We've got all the programs. We've got all the education. I think we do over 12,000 teaching hours of education. We've got you know, 40 um, uh, clinicians running around site. We've got an army of social workers, reintegration staff, forensic mental health, um, forensic care. Have, have, they've got a, uh, a big operation up in our FMH unit. We've got CCA nurses, psych nurses. You know, we've got we've got it all to work out. Now, is it a health issue? Can we help you with? Let's look at that. Is it a mental health issue? Let's have a look at that. Is it an education issue? Let's have a look at that. Um, housing issue? Let's have a look at that. Let's see if there's what options that can we get you um, are out there to help you get a home or employment after release. A drug and alcohol. Um, I remember talking to a magistrate once who, who came to Fulham. Just a quick side story. He was on the travelling. He was on the circuit. So he, uh, once every you know, couple of, couple times a year, he would uh, swing by and have a cup of tea with me. And he'd always ask the question. He goes, "Cole, what what are you doing? You know, um, in, in terms of your services and programs?" I said, "Oh, we we're doing something for serious violent offenders, and we've got this new." high-intensity violence program. And he goes, oh, yeah, but w- what are you doing about drugs and alcohol? He goes, I don't care about that. He goes, what he's, what he's explained to me was that he saw through the families in a lot of instances the effect that drug and alcohol had on on people. And he was very much an advocate or very keen to understand what what we are doing as a prison system. And I think for him more broadly what we're doing as a community to address drug, drug and alcohol. So that's a key factor for us, a key risk for us, to address you know we've got at the bridge center which is part of the program which i'll go into shortly um, they've got a clinician there that just deals with drug and alcohol so pre-release whilst the prisoner is incarcerated we've got it all to sort of get them um, ready if you like and then what we do we create i guess uh, we hand over um, we call it through the through the gate service where we hand over we start handing over to a post-release worker or post-release service whilst they're still incarcerated. So they establish that rapport whilst they're incarcerated, the post-release worker does. And so when they get out, they go straight into some sort of support service. Now, outside of Richmond on uh, Bridge Street, uh, Bridge Road, there's the Bridge Centre. Um, now, the difference, the, the difference between the Bridge Centre, which is a post-release centre, and, say, a parole or a uh, CCS office is that the Bridge Centre is voluntary. 
So the only criteria to be eligible to access the Bridge Centre is that you just simply need to be released from Ravenhall. So at the Bridge Centre, there's there's again a small army of post-release workers that are that are picking up uh, what was started pre-release and continuing that post-release. Now the rubber doesn't hit the ground until a person gets out. So they can tell you all the positive things you want to hear in, inside of a program or they can get all the certificates in the world through the education provider and they can certainly do the right thing. But the first six weeks in particular, when they get out, is the highest risk because um, the, the noise of life, if you like, just, just gets really loud all of a sudden. The old associates, their old friends, the old drug dealer down the, down the corner... Um, the, I guess how they learnt to survive, um, they will fall back on that. That's part of the default setting. So all the things they learn in prison um, can be washed away because of just, just life again. So the post-release workers are there um, to help them out. And that's the difference. We call it the continuing care. So it doesn't ma- it's not a through care. So a through care used to be the start of the, a person's detainer through the end of their detainer that period where a duty of care was owed towards the individual. So what Ravenhall offers is and provides is a, a, a care service regardless of your detainer. So, um, so a lot of the men that go through the bridge centre, they don't have parole, they don't have a community corrections order, um, but they need help and the bridge centre is there. It could be ho- housing, so we pay for accommodation um, for, for men three months, six months to help them find their feet we try and broker uh, employer relationships to give them a job. Um, there was a, a good success story even as early as today where one of our employment consultants uh, done the hooray, you know. Um, she was able to find a job for a person that was currently still, and currently still is in Ravenall, but they're now secured employment even before they get out. So that was, that was uh, these, these are the sorts of success, success stories that keep us motivated. So we, we actually tell these stories to our staff to keep them motivated as well because it's not, it's not about the metric. It's not about the recidivism rate for us. It's not about getting the payment by result or anything like that. What keeps our staff motivated are these success stories. So I'm going to read one out to you if I can. Yeah, go along. for it. This is not got my name in it, has it? You're not going to read this about <laughs> yeah. me, is it? Uh, Mick was released. <laughs> <laughs> no. So this is... Um, uh, so. So the names have been protected, um, uh, de-identified, obviously. So this is Adam, who was released from Ravenall after serving five-month sentence. Now, five-month month sentence is is a typical sentence. I think the average uh, is around about three months or below. So these are people that are coming in and out, fleeting in, in and out of our prison system all the time. And prisons are very disruptive to a person's life, as you can imagine. Um, so he's doing five months sentence. Um, he's got an, Adam has has an extensive criminal history dating back as far as 1990. Um, Adam's charges mostly involve family violence, driving offences, and possession of drugs. Now, um, before coming into custody, Adam was homeless um, and did not have any accommodation to go to on release. Adam was supported with a few nights emergency accommodation by the Salvation Army. Following this, he contacted the Bridge Centre. So he reached out to the Richmond Centre and, and was supported to apply for accommodation through a friend. The friend had a spare room and Adam was able to have his name added to the lease and begin rental payments. Due to a significant history of poor mental health, um, Adam was on a disability support pension and had not any formal employment for over six years, which is not uncommon. With the support of the post-release caseworker at the Bridge Centre, Adam has secured a casual job, working six hours per week in a local restaurant. He's enjoying his new job, continues to secure shifts each weekend, and managing his hours allows Adam to sustain his paid employment with no impact on his disability support pension. Given his housing and employment stability since release, he's now considering studying and going into a tertiary course uh, and he's doing some research into that. Um, the post-release caseworker at the Bridge Centre is supporting Adam to obtain his driver's licence after being banned from driving some time ago 
and is required to complete an intensive drug driver's course and is saving money to book himself on this course as soon as possible. Um, aside from transport to work, um, Adam is very motivated um, to get his license back, purchase a car so that he can assist with his elderly mother with everyday tasks such as shopping, visiting, friends, family and attending medical appointments and he still maintains regular contact with the Bridge Centre. So, so there was a, well, you could almost say career criminal, a person since 1990s coming in and out of the system um, who really struggled with knowing any other way of life. And, and I do know people and have seen um, people get institutionalised by spending so much time in prison, um, which uh, then they struggle to, to you know, survive, if you like, in the community. In prison, they get told to wake up, when to, when to go to bed, they get regular meals at, at a particular time. Their day is very structured. They're called the prisoner structured day. So everything is routine for them. It makes it controlled, makes it predictable, makes it safe. But you don't get that in the community. In the community, you have to take responsibility. It's not spoon-fed to you. So people spending too long in prison can get that's too institutionalised, which works against it. So that's just one of many stories. and, and uh, I pulled that out of our, our report that we send off um, and uh, for our five-year anniversary actually we will be doing um, uh, a book of sorts I believe um, uh, that I guess um, details these types of stories, these success stories. Um, we won't be putting metrics up to say we have reduced recidivism by what we have will have individual cases because for me that is success of Ravenel and that shows that particular case shows the work that pre-release that's getting done what it doesn't show is all the work pre-release uh, that's that's already happened um, so you know that's uh, that's something that I think all of the staff you know, and all the people associated with the Ravenel project should be very proud of mm. absolutely yeah and obviously you know the thing you want to see is change and you want to you want to you want, and I think you want to be able to know that it's possible so, like, saying to you, um, like, you believe that people can change. That's fair to say, Carl, yeah? Like, yeah, you would have a strong right. belief that, you know, people can change in prison. Obviously, Mark, you would have a strong belief, and, and I would have a strong belief as well. Um, can everyone change? Or where, 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 does it, where does it come to a point where you kind of go, does it, there's not going to be a significant change? This is more of a different approach that we need to take. Uh, I think everyone changes. I think time changes people. Um, we all grow up. I mean, uh, me as a young 21-year-old going into the prison service, I'm a completely changed person. I, I have different um, uh, attitude um, and obviously know a lot more. And that, through that experience, my life experience, I've changed as a person. Um, to put me in front of the podcast as a 21-year-old, it would have been a completely wild show. <laughs> 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 Well, I don't think it would have been coherent, but <laughs> um, but 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 people change. And yeah. and I, I've spoken to you before, uh, Mick. You know, the, uh, talking to the pre-service course, um, and one of the things I say to the, the to the trainee correctional officers every time is um, about their job and, and and the importance of it, and how there could be nothing more admirable and honourable that you can do in life than change a person's person's life. People do change. So they do know one thing changes. They know one thing changes and significantly reduces a person's risk of reoffending. Um, and I used to play a game with the pre-service course, as I spoke to you about, Mick. Um, and they tell me all sorts of things that that uh, commonly are, you know, homelessness or is it alcohol and other drugs or is it this and the other thing. They do know that um, age has a significant impact on a person's risk of reoffending because people grow up. And, and I say to them, got everything there, um, but a person has to be willing to engage. They have to be ready to, to take on new information. They have to be ready to learn. They have to be, they have to be responsive in terms of um, wanting to change. And that takes some time, particularly when you're dealing with young people. And as YMCA, they deal with young people every day of the week. I'm, uh, you know, you could tell uh, most people better than others that, you know, it's a journey. It's not just about quick success. It's, there's no elixir out there to give a person to go, ha-ha, they've changed. 
it is a journey that they're on and it's a life journey and it's about experiences and it's about growing up yeah yeah and it's a really interesting point that you made that's why you know you talk about that age thing you were talking to myself and, and damien the the, the Reva manager as well and he was um sharing a story about someone that's with us um, that's been, you know, three years, has been in and out of rebuild, has in that time has returned to custody, has, you know, had lots of downs and, 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 and a few whoops, but he's he's back with us now. When we're looking, Damien was saying they're looking at putting on, like, you know, full time, you know what I mean? And and he, I think he was reflecting on that as well. I think that was probably due to he's getting older and, you know, he's getting you know a little bit more looking around and going like you can't keep doing this so you know somewhere along the line it does happen um as well and that's probably we see it a fair bit in, in the work that we do you know but you said you're right people have to be ready to change um but the work that you do should never be felt that it's wasted in all that time because even business used to say to us when we had a young person they go oh you know we don't feel, feel like he succeeded because he you know he only lasted two or three months ago well it depends on what you're what you what you deem as success he's never had a job ever before he's never ever experienced an employment before um and then you know you now and again i'll go back and say you remember that time we had that conversation that person's now in a job and they're actually holding down the job so what they learned from you was probably how to lose a job know how to not lose a job the next time but they've taken something from it it's just you can't see it because they go on with their life right yeah. So it's a really good point you make because I think you should never people should never get disheartened by seeing immediate change because, you know, you're embedding stuff in there that hopefully one day will come together for them and they go, ah, now I know. Yeah, um, and at Ravenel, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give people, I guess, a bit of an insight um, through through their pro, through our programs, through our, through our job readiness programs, you know, through our education provider, um, just trying to get them, I guess, their head around the fact that there's a better life. You know, there there is more more to life than just reoffending and living that type of lifestyle. And a short period of success, whether it's three months or three days, could be just a life-changing event that a person reflects upon in the future to go, yeah, I want more than more more of that, or I miss that. Um, and it's just like the video conferencing. You know, something will will spark in them, which motivates them to do the right thing and to, to then change. Yeah. And speaking of change, it's like, what would you, what would you like to see next behind the walls of, of, of Ravenhall? Like what would be the next big ticket things or the next things you're looking at that you would like to say, Hey, that would be really interesting if we could kind of step into that a bit more. It might be something you're already doing or it might be something that you, you know, have taught this could be a bit of a, a great initiative. I think the first thing I'd like to do is just have, stable operation for a period of time <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the first no thing, chance yeah, yeah. I, I guess that we've been in a in a constant state of change Ravenel has since the outset we changed even before we got our first prison prisoner and there's been a lot of energy by the leadership team in terms of adjusting to that change getting ready for the change change management after that etc cetera, etc cetera. so and then we've had the pandemic and all the issues that go with that so for the next six months I just want to take a breather, you know, and just, just consolidate things a little bit. Realise the vision. Realise, uh, get those ingredients, the, the, get the continuing care working as intended um, and then to start telling some more of these success stories. After that, um, after that, I think there's some real opportunities to, to change it up. I mean, one thing about Ravenhall which, is, uh, which has been successful is the Alliance Partner Model. So, you know, the government has outsourced, you know, its, its uh, prison to GEO and uh, in that um, we've got this, you know, this small group of uh, uh, organisations that are contributing to the success. So we've got YMCA, you know, we've got uh, Kangan, Bendigo Kangan Institute of TAFE, we've got Crick Care Australia, we've got Frenzy Care, we've got Honeywell, um, we've got all these people around there. Now, one thing that... Uh, one thing that model proves is that um, giving it to organisations that specialise in in that um, particular discipline, whatever it might be, is a good model. I mean, GEO, are we a, are we a training organisation in terms of prisoner education? No. Do we uh, do forensic mental health? No. But what we do do, um, we, we align ourselves with these 
people uh, like YMCA um, that come on board and deliver a particular service on behalf of the Victorian community. And that, that's what you're doing. So I think in that alliance partner space, and I think the future will be to look for maybe perhaps more alliance partners or to change up the alliance partner model. Um, it's five years old now and do something creative in that space. I mean, we only spoke today, Mick, about what we can do um, to lever off the relationship that we have between each other. Um, not for not for our organisation's benefit, but for the model's benefit, for which is uh, the outcome of the men um, that are you know uh, that we have uh, that we're working with uh, to get better outcomes. So that's where I think we can do better. That's what not do better, but look outside the box to determine how we can deliver a higher level of service, um, which ultimately the Victorian community um, uh, benefits from. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as we spoke about before, yeah, um, off air and stuff like that, yeah. You know, we, we love them conversations and welcome them conversations. And I think that, you know, the strength in what you're doing um, and the vision of what you're doing um, is fresh, is different because you are working with the Alliance Partners. Um, and I mean, it's the best possible way. Not, you know, we're not, we don't feel like we're working for, we're working with. And I think when you run social enterprises, you run programs that we do, I remember way, way back when we were having first conversations about, you know, this whole, you know, new prison that was going in. And I remember having the conversation saying, what's it going to be? I think I asked, they were like, you know, yeah, it's going to be great. Da, da, da. And I was like, well, tell me what's going to be different. And because we want to, like, we weren't convinced, you know, that why would we want to, you know, go into work in the prison? What's going to be different about this? And I think how it was explained and then how it's actually come to light and how it's actually been followed through on and how it's actually delivering like there's still a long ways to go as as in everything because you, you're growing everything but one of the the, the the heartening things I think for us is that you can really see the impact that's been had and even by the, the feel and the look of the prison when you go into it you know after five years it still looks very fresh the same there's a healthy respect from the you know the men in there of the facility we work sport and rec sport and rec is looking exactly the same as it was pretty much in the first day that's Pretty crazy yeah. and pretty good, you know what I mean? Um, so I think this def it's definitely great positive things that are happening in there. So, yeah, we welcome that conversation and, and we look forward to, you know, many more years of being able to, to do great work alongside you, with you as well. So, yeah. Um, before we go, I ask a question of everyone that comes on, um, Time to Rebuild. So when you were a kid... What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> um, if you said to me, would I work in a, in a, in a correctional <laughs> centre? We, we haven't heard that answer yet, so I'd be a bit, I'd be a bit worried if we did, probably. Yeah, but but I, I do know people that uh, actually set out to be career corrections people. But um, uh, uh, Look, I, I was a bit of a closet nerd. You know, growing up uh, with the Commodore 64 and... Uh, Commodore 64, jeez. Yeah, yeah, I learned how to pro uh, program in BASIC and uh, do those sorts of things. So I always thought I'd be in the IT world uh, back back in the day. Uh, so that's what I had an affinity to. Well, that's what I loved, you know. Um, fast forward now. Is Have you got IT skills now? Are you social savvy? Are you good? Are you good with it? I, I think my... My stepdaughters would probably say no, <laughs> you know, but you know the TV remote. Uh, but but uh, you know those that know me, yeah, they they think I'm a bit of a closet nerd still. So yeah. I don't mind tinkering. I used to build the computers as a you know as a young man. Yeah. You just yeah. sort of put it together, and and uh, I still you know read the occasional magazine, and and uh, um, yeah, it keeps my interest. Yeah. In terms of technology, that's that's I guess one of my things. That's great. Yeah, um, well, thank you so much, Carl, for, for coming in and uh, being a guest on Time to Rebuild. I think it's been a really important conversation. It's been a great conversation, but we we just really wanted to have, you know, you on um, just because you've just really spoke really openly um, about your work, you know, Geo's work, Ravenhall's vision, mission, everything that's going on, and some of the challenges that we've been facing and all that, but all the positive stuff that's happening as well. Um, and thanks for all your support. Like, you know, it's been, you know, five years we're coming up to um, and uh, it's it's gone quick. But, uh, you know, and obviously we had two and a half years kind of need taken out of it. But, you know, um, one thing that's never stopped has been, I think, the 
the, the positive rapport, the opportunity to have conversations um, and just the willingness um, from your side, um, GEO side and everyone that we work with into actually going, yeah, let's, let's think about that. There's never been like, no. It's like, okay, explain what you want to do. How are we going to do that? All right, let's have a think about it. I think that's all you can ever ask for. Yeah, even just that. And you've done that um, throughout our time as well. So we look forward to the you know next years walking alongside you and walking in there doing creating great opportunities for the for the, for the men upon the release and, and well well in the prison and upon the release but thanks so much for your time mate thanks for the work you're doing and uh, yeah we'll uh, probably see you next time I see you be in the, in the prison alright no worries thanks gentlemen Damn, uh, thanks the time. yeah it's been a good chat awesome appreciate it thanks Cheers. mate